The sermon today comes from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep. Behold, children are a heritage of the, from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. A vacation from the vacation. I think most everyone knows what I'm speaking of there. I'm fresh off vacation. So uh, it's resonating in my heart. And, and what it means is you, you go on vacation to seek refreshment and to seek rest. And when you don't find it, you realize you get back, you need another vacation to somehow get that refreshment and that rest. Work is exhausting. Work is sometimes painful, and that's why we, our hearts cry out for a break. I need a break. You know, the, the, the exhaustion of work or the, the pain of work is the phrase that's used in the middle of this psalm, in Psalm 127, anxious toil. That means exhausting work. That means painful work. That we say, I need a break, I need a vacation. But the reality is, and vacations are good, they're important. But a vacation in and of itself does not bring the refreshment and the rest that our hearts long for. What is this psalm primarily about? It's primarily about an attitude. An attitude towards what? Well, not first and foremost towards work. This is a psalm that's about an attitude towards God. And that of independence versus dependence. And it's that attitude towards God of, of independence versus dependence that certainly plays out in work life, and it certainly has everything to do with your exhaustion, both physical and mental. So, how do you work? How do you deal with the exhaustion of work? in a fallen and broken world? And to answer this, we're gonna answer basically three questions. What is the result of independence or, or functioning or working or laboring independent of God? What's the fruit of dependence? And then what's the practice of dependence? So let's start with the first one, the result of independence. You'll see in this Psalm, there are, there's two results of working independent of God. And the first is laboring in vain. The word vain appears three times in those first two verses. What does it mean? Well, in short, it means pointless. It means empty or, or pointless. It's speaking of, of work that is empty. There's, there's, there's no third option here. The psalmist lays out two alternatives, and there's not a third. And the two options are this. It's either the Lord's doing or it's pointless. Those are the two, only two options that are laid out here. It's either the Lord's doing or it's pointless. Look at verse one. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Or another way to say this would be, unless the Lord builds the house, all the hard work of building is pointless. Unless the Lord watches over the city, 
the watchman stay awake in vain, or all the hard work of securing and protecting is pointless. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It's not saying that if you work independent of God, all your projects will fail. Doesn't say that. In fact, verse two says that your hard work will produce some sort of bread, right? The bread of anxious toil. You'll get something out of it. The question is, is it pointless? Is it worthless? To use verse one imagery, the house in the city may survive if you build it apart from God, independent of God. The question is, was it worth building in the first place? Was there a point to it? That this idea of vain labor is that the that labor that's done in vain is worthless and pointless in regards to God's purposes and God's kingdom. There's a great illustration of this in Genesis chapter 11. It's the Tower of Babel. The earth is destroyed with a flood. God saves Noah and his family. And then he tells Noah after the flood to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's Genesis 1 language. It's recreation right after the flood. And so Noah and his descendants multiply. And as they multiply, his descendants get a great idea. They're going to build a city and a tower. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. In the creation mandate, God says, I want you to take what I've given you and build society and build communities and build cultures and to build, create. Nothing wrong with that. The problem was the why behind why, why they wanted to build a tower and a city. And we see that in Genesis 11:4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See, the problem was they were building this city, they were building this tower for their own glory. They were trying to build a name for themselves, to build their worth, their identity apart from God. And God would have none of it. So what did he do? He confused their languages. They couldn't work together anymore. And the project stops. It literally says in Genesis 11, they left building the city. You get this picture of a city and a tower that just lay vacant. It was pointless. And it was worthless. It was, it was going nowhere. My son, when he started to ride his bike on training wheels on our street in front of our house, we have a neighborhood that, where the curbs are the, the gently sloped curbs so you can ride over them onto your driveway. Well, he would get his bike near the edge of the road and, and one of the training wheels would get up on the curb. And so his back wheel would be not touching the ground anymore. And, and so the bike's moving along, he's pedaling, he gets up on the curb, bike stops, he's still pedaling and pedaling and pedaling. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to labor in vain, to work hard, to pedal, to strive. But for what point, right? Pointlessness, worthlessness. Ultimately, what that is, is to make a name for yourself to convince yourself and the world that you're, you're worth something, to have an identity. And so we see here the first result of laboring independent of God is labor or work that's in vain. And this leads directly into the second result of working independent of God that we see in the Psalm. And that is laboring in pain. Verse two, 
It's in vain that you rise up early, go to late, late to rest, eating the bread of, and there it is, anxious toil. The word there for anxious toil is the same word that's used in Genesis 3 that's translated pain. So in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve decide we've had enough of God, we're rebelling from God, we're gonna seek our happiness and our purpose and establish our worth independent of God, it says, God says, because of your sin and rebellion and you're seeking happiness apart from me, in pain, you're gonna bear children. Same word there as anxious toil. In pain, you're gonna bear children. In pain, you're gonna eat the plants of the field. Right? There's gonna be pain and there's gonna be toil. And what we see in, in Psalm 127 is that harder work doesn't solve the problem. See, that's what happens in verse two, right? Stay up late, rise early. In fact, if I work harder and harder, this thing's gonna go somewhere. And the reality is harder work's not the solution. Harder work actually leads to slavery. And you can see why. If you are working, when I say working, everyone in here is working, right? From homemaker to downtown in an office building, right? Everyone here is working. That if you're working ultimately independent of God, you have no choice then to use your work to make a name for yourself, to convince the world that you're, that you're smart, that you're athletic, that you're successful, that you're good at what you do. If that's what you're working for, then it will automatically lead to slavery because you can never get there. There is always someone that's smarter than you. There's always someone that's more athletic than you, someone that's more successful than you, uh, uh, someone that is better at what they do than you. And so it's this endless striving to try to get this name or to get this recognition that you can never quite get. And so it leads to a slavery of working harder and harder and harder. Let me bring it back to the analogy or the picture of my son on his training wheels. So when he first did that and he rode up on the edge of the road and that, that training wheel got up on the curb and, and he was pedaling, but the bike wasn't going anywhere, what was his first instinct? Pedal harder, right? I'm not going anywhere. So he would pedal harder and harder and harder. And finally, after massive amounts of self-effort and frustration, he'd say, Daddy, help! And I'd take a step forward and I'd nudge him off the curb and off he went, right? But that's a picture of what it looks like to labor in pain and to labor in vain. And independent of God, that's what happens, that our work becomes empty, pointless, and then painful and exhausting, leads to exhaustion. So now we move on to the second point, brings us to the second point on the fruit of dependence. So what is the fruit of dependence on God? The, the Psalm takes a shift here from the end of verse two into verse three. And it's a shift that, that oftentimes when we read this psalm, it, it looks like it's a, almost two different psalms. There's a psalm, verses one and two, and then there's a psalm, verses three to five. Right, into verse two, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. 
behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. And you read that and go, wow, there just seems to be a disconnect there. It's a, there's actually a very strong connection. Because what you see is that all of this frantic activity of laboring and working independent of God, right, that leads to anxious toil and that leads to staying up late and rising early, frantic activity, all of that frantic activity in the psalm gives way to God working and God blessing and God moving, right? You see the frantic activity go to, for he gives his beloved sleep. God gives sleep, which is he gives rest from the exhaustion, both physically, but more importantly, spiritually and emotionally at the heart level. And then you see, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, that, that, that God gives children, that that's a gift from him. In fact, the whole giving of children is a beautiful picture of God at work, and we participate. Right? We participate through reproduction, but God creates a child. And so what we see here is this shift to God blessing, God moving away from the frantic activity of man. And again, this is beautifully illustrated in Genesis chapter 11. The first half of Genesis 11 is the building of the tower. They're trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to convince themselves they're worth something. They need an identity. And so they're going to build this city and tower. And it's frantic activity. God shuts it down, right, by confusing the languages. And then Genesis 11 shifts into this genealogy of Noah and his descendants. And it's a long genealogy, but towards the end of chapter 11, we read of God quietly giving a child to an obscure woman named Terah. And the child's name is Abram or Abraham, the father of the nations, through whom the Christ would come, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is the one that ultimately gives us our name, who gives us our worth, who gives us our identity. And so in Genesis 11, it's frantic activity, anxious toil, exhausting labor, and it gives birth by the end of the chapter to God blessing and moving and working to send Abraham into his world, who would be the father of the nations and ultimately sending Jesus Christ into the world. That God is the one who works. And when you understand that you derive your name, which means your identity and your worth and your honor from Jesus Christ, then suddenly work doesn't become the thing that you try to obtain that through. And you find balance in your work, neither overwork nor underwork. But the point of Psalm 127, it insists on a perspective that God's work is at the center and our work is at the periphery. God's work's at the center, our work's at the periphery. Can I illustrate this using a very deep, very philosophical, very theological word picture of a jelly donut? Can you imagine biting into a jelly donut and not finding any jelly? You know, every bite, you're waiting till your teeth sink into that sweet jelly. And if you don't like jelly donuts, figure it out. Imagine this, okay? You're, you're biting into it, and you never get there. How would you respond to that? If you bought a donut from a donut shop that was a jelly donut, and you bit into it, and you never got to jelly because it wasn't in there. 
you'd say, what a waste. I could have bought a powdered donut. What a waste. What ultimately gives the jelly donut its purpose? It's not the, it's not the fried and powdered dough on the outside. Right? It's the jelly in the middle. Listen, your work derives its meaning from God's work in the center, that your work is not in the center. God's work is, and your work derives its meaning from that center. There was a, a church father in the fourth century. His name was Hilary. He was a bishop in France, and he said this. Every Christian must be constantly vigilant in what, against what he called a blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him. A blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him. And so the fruit of dependence is recognizing God's gifts, recognizing that God is moving, that God is blessing, and receiving that and recognizing that. And when you do, when you're working dependently on God, then, then your work is balanced, right? If God's work's at the center, then you're not prone to overwork, right? Because his work is at the center and you're just drafting off of what he's doing. And if God's work at the center, you're, you're also not prone to underwork because you long to participate in what he's doing. So what does this all look like in practice? What's the practice of independence? As we move to this last point, you'll notice in Psalm 127 that I would say the three top universal preoccupations of mankind are spoken of in this psalm. Building, and I'll explain what that means. Security, and raising a family. Building, security, raising a family. So we start with, with building in verse one. Unless the Lord builds the house. The house in, the, in scriptures always has two meanings, especially in the Old Testament especially. House can refer to a, a literal physical dwelling place. It can also refer to the family, right? It's the family meaning of house that ties in well to verses three to five, which we're gonna get to. But the physical dwelling, what can that refer to? Literal house. It can refer to the temple, the house of the Lord. In fact, Solomon is attributed to writing the Psalm. So a lot of temple imagery in it. But if you take building and just even back out further, building is, is creating. It's making something, right? And you and I are always building. It doesn't matter what field you're in, what profession you're in. You're always about creating or making something because we're made in the image of a God who creates, a God who makes. So he made us in his image and we build, we create, we make. And it takes on all kinds of forms. You, you're building and creating lesson plans as a teacher. You're building a business. You're designing something. You're building a career. And the question becomes, if we talk about building a career, is God at the center of that? Is God at the center of your career building? Or is he on the periphery? Is Christ an afterthought when it comes to your vocation? 
You may have Jesus Christ, at least intellectually in your framework, in your spiritual life at the center, but when it comes to your vocation, is he in the center? Or is he somewhere on the periphery? You say, Keith, listen, I went to school for what I'm doing. I got a degree for what I'm doing. I got trained for what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And I would say that that's the very danger of independence because independence doesn't recognize that your schooling, your degree, your training is all a work of God's grace, that he's given you everything. And so we would say, you don't perform a surgery apart from him. You don't teach a class apart from him. You don't manage someone's finances apart from him. You don't manage people apart from him. You don't build a, a home or an office building apart from him. You don't broker a deal apart from him. You don't administrate an office apart from him. You don't compose music or create a piece of art apart from him. You don't build a business apart from him. And let me add one last thing here, very practical. Dependence on Christ means that you don't manipulate to build or make what you want. Dependence on Christ means that you don't manipulate to build or make what you want independent of God, that you're dependent on him. Second practice of dependence that we see in this psalm is security. This comes out of the, the last half of verse one, unless the Lord watches over the city. Now, in ancient times, that was literally referring to in ancient Israel, a city would have walls around it to protect from enemies. And if there was a time of political uncertainty, right, they would, they would ramp up the energy of protecting this city. And the point here is not that you and I don't take measures to secure or to protect. It just means that our measures to secure and protect are pointless if the Lord's not securing and the Lord's not protecting. If you operate in this area of security and protection, independent of God, it will severely compromise your ability to engage with him on mission in this world. Let me give a, an example from the book of Acts. We're in community Bible reading. We're finishing the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 21, Paul is about to go to Jerusalem. And his companions and the people around him say, Paul, don't go. Because they were fearing for his life. Listen to how Paul responded to them. He said, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, dependence on Christ produces a boldness and a courage that says, I am gonna be about the mission of God no matter what the cost. Independence will not move you to that place. And let me add a, a, a section here on children around security and protection. If you're operating independent of God, and let me just clarify when I say that, I mean functionally. I don't mean intellectually what we profess, okay? We, we're quick to say I'm dependent on God. I mean functionally, if you're operating independent of God, 
you will stunt and stifle, potentially stunt and stifle the growth of your children and the sprouting of your children. Listen, in our day and age, if you're, cons- if you're gonna operate independent of God in our day and age, and I mean being consistent, like absolutely independent of God, you would not let your kids leave the house. You wouldn't do it. And if you let them leave, you'd put them in a full body armor suit when they leave the house, right? Dependence on Christ says, yes, we live in a scary world. We live in a broken world. But dependence on Christ gives you wisdom into how to protect and how to secure, but then wisdom in how to let your children spread their wings, right, and sprout and grow. This bleeds into the third practice that we see in this psalm, practice of dependence, and this is on raising a family. Verses three to five really, really speak into this, right? Verse three, children are a heritage or an inheritance from the Lord. Verse four, children are compared to arrows in the hand of a warrior. The psalmist uses a metaphor of war here. And the arrows in the hand of a warrior, those protect the warrior. What he's saying is that children... Children protect, especially parents as they get into old age against abandonment or loneliness, that children actually are are protectors. So what we pull from this is that, that children who are raised and nurtured in the Lord become defenders of justice and protectors of the weak and the vulnerable. That's what, when we get down to the end of verse five, when it says he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. What's the gate? Well, in ancient times, the city gate was the place of court. That was the place where court was held. And so what it's saying is that this father's, you know, as he ages, he has children in his youth, as he ages, his children speak on his behalf in the gate, in court, against his enemies. Right, that these are children that are defenders of justice, protectors of the weak, protectors of the vulnerable. If you raise your children functionally independent of God, and what, what I mean by that is if you are raising your kids functionally apart from God or independent of God, you're gonna raise them to fulfill the American dream, but not the Great Commission. What I mean by that is you, you will raise them to get a good education, to maybe get the, the best college degree that's going to get them the most lucrative, high-paying job. That they get out of college, they get that job, you get them married quickly, they buy a house, white picket in front, 2.5 children, and they're upstanding and model citizens. I mean, that's, that's the American dream. Independent of God, that's just naturally how you're going to raise your children. But dependent on God, you raise your kids to be warriors for Christ, to be defenders of justice, the protectors of the the weak and vulnerable, um, heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ, heart for the lost, desire to bring gospel renewal to the world. and And listen to this, the courage and boldness to forgo the American dream, to follow Jesus Christ on mission that that's what it means to raise children, to raise a family dependent on God that says we're gonna raise, our very first priority 
in raising our children, our number one priority is fulfilling the Great Commission. And then our children would fulfill the Great Commission. And if that means punting the American dream, which we all should punt the American dream, but my children, I'm going to raise them to fulfill the Great Commission, to be warriors for Christ, to be protectors and defenders of justice and what's right and heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to raise a family dependent on God. So where does this leave us? So we talk about this practice of dependence, even talking about it, you can talk about it in a logical, rational, intellectual way, as if dependence is some formula just to execute. But what is the primary expression of, or of dependence? What's the primary expression of our dependence on God? Back in 2001, when the World Trade Centers came down, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, he, he describes how this dark shadow just descended over New York City, and for that matter, over the entire country. But he also describes how this darkness descended over his individual family at that time as his wife began really struggling with the effects of Crohn's disease and as he got diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And he recalls his wife coming to him and urging him to do something that they together had never been able to muster the self-discipline to do. And she asked him to pray for her every night. Every night. And as they recall, she, she used a, an illustration to kind of crystallize what she was feeling. And as they recall, it, she said something like this. Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. She said, well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all that we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray, she said. We can't just let it slip our minds. May that be true of our individual families here at East. May that be true of our collective family called Christ Church East, that our attitude would be of such dependence on God that we would say, if, if we don't express our dependence in prayer regularly, we're not going to make it. With all that we're facing, we're not going to make it. And if we don't pray and we don't express our dependence on God, all of our striving, all of our self-striving is going to lead to emptiness and to exhaustion. Let's pray. Father, we confess our rugged independence. We confess our rugged independence to build our careers, to build and create. We confess our rugged independence when it comes to securing and protecting. We confess our rugged independence when it comes to raising a, a family, raising children, 
And Father, we confess our rugged independence that expresses itself through lack of prayer. Father, we don't want to leave today with, with mustering up our self-effort to pray, that we could even continue in our rugged independence saying we're going to pray, which may last a couple days. We ask that for you to do something we can't do, that you would give us, that you would move in us, that you would bless us with a heart of dependence, that we would believe and feel and know at the core of who we are, that we're, we are utterly dependent on you, Jesus, that apart from you, we can do nothing. Would you help our, our intellectual profession match up with our heart profession? that functionally we would believe that. And out of that functional dependence would flow seasons of prayer. Husbands and wives praying together. Husbands and wives with children praying together. Children seeing that mom and dad can't make it without prayer. And as a church that we would really believe that we can't make it without prayer. Father, pray for the, at 1015, the elder prayer time, that you would move in that time as the elders come and others that gather with the elders and confess their utter dependence on you, that we would believe a service like this is pointless and empty unless, God, you move by your Holy Spirit in our hearts to wake us up, to bring us to life, to the wonders of your grace, and your forgiveness in Jesus Christ that you've wiped all our sins away. Father, as we come to the Lord's Supper at the end of this service, would you by your spirit bring us to a place of dependence, eating this meal as a, as a profession and a confession that we don't have what it takes and that we're absolutely dependent on you, Jesus, to move and to bless and to do what we are unable to do. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.